0: Hey Julie.
1: Hey Mike.
0: You ready for another episode of uh, That's probably how it happened?
1: That's probably <laughs> how it happened. Yeah. Uh-huh. I
0: hear I hear someone laughing in the background who is not you or me. Did you bring a that's guest our along? Special
1: guest. Yes, oh. that's our special guest that I, I'm keeping as a secret until until later.
0: <laughs> is, is- is now not that later?
1: <laughs> oh, you want me to tell everybody about our special guest before our opening banter? Because I have I have to tell you, because of this podcast, I lost a date. So thank you, Mike.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Was it because they listened to the podcast and then decided that you were undateable because of it or just the scheduling? Well, part,
1: they, I, I don't know if I'm undateable in a general sense because of this podcast, but for this particular person... I said, go listen to my podcast and then you'll you'll get to know me and I'll probably never hear from you again. And he's like, I doubt that because he thought I was really pretty in my selfies. And then uh, he listened to the podcast and yep. Nope. What? Well, you know, our last podcast was all about the fact that I love Carl's Jr. veggie burgers and I don't smoke weed. And this guy obviously had a problem with both of those things.
0: (laughs) He sounds like a jerk. You're better off recording the podcast.
1: Yeah. All right. So I dodged a bullet instead of, you know, losing a date.
0: You're welcome.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you, Mike. Now now I love you again and I'd love the podcast again.
0: That was a close one.
1: And maybe I need to go on a different dating site. Besides the one yeah. full of meat eating potheads. <laughs> In fact that's what it's called, meat and weed. I don't know why I'm on there.
0: <laughs> if this podcast thing doesn't work out, we can start a dating site. That'll be plan B.
1: Okay. No, I think that's a different thing, Mike, but anyway.
0: You ready to introduce uh, your special guest host?
1: Yes. This person is one of my good friends who I got to know very, very well at the start of COVID, but because we bonded over watching Tiger King on Netflix together when everybody in the country was watching Tiger King and thinking that we would all be back to normal in a month, and here we are four months later... And nothing has changed, and I'm still friends with her, which is a good thing. (laughs) She's a fabulous storyteller. She was a stand-up comic. Please welcome Mary Karuba. Hello. Hello. And we
2: met at your uh, Saturday or your Oakland Storytelling. Uh huh. Story slam, Oakland. Nobody ever
1: gets that name right. Story slam, Slam. (laughs)
2: story slam, Oakland. Well, I know it's a story slam and it's in Oakland, but I didn't put the sequence together properly. But (laughs) yes, you
1: came and you did a story at my show, and I was just like, "Oh, you're so great! You're so funny! Come back and do it again."
2: Yes, I think that's how that happened.
1: Yeah. That's
0: probably yeah. how it happened. So the fact that everyone gets the name of your story show wrong, is that really a problem with everyone? Or maybe a problem with the name of your story show, do you think, Julie? Really?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm ready to drop the word Oakland because it, it's really Story Slam online now. It because it's oh. anywhere. And wow. when I moved to Hawaii or Fairfax, or the South of France, it will just still be Story Slam online.
0: Those are the classic big three, Hawaii, Fairfax, and the South of France, so you just have to decide. Mary, do you have a story for us? I do. Excellent. Um, So as we try to reverse engineer a theme, what is the theme of your story, would you say, Mary?
2: I would say we should all be nicer to ourselves.
0: Niceness, I like it. Julie, what is the theme of your story?
1: Interspecies farting and pooping. <laughs> okay, I'm out. Okay. <laughs> I'm out That was terrible. She thinks <laughs> it's in bad taste. Um, it's about the theme is is about cats, cats, and 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 peer pressure and trying to look good in front of your your peers.
0: Oh, all right. Mine's just about friendship, but, um, but all right. You got, some, you got some wide-spanning themes here.
2: Well, my mother said, my mother was very specific when I told her what I was doing, and she said, Mary, you have to tell a funny story because <laughs> everybody's so depressed right now. Don't tell a serious story. I have to let, I have to let mom down, yeah, but she is right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is not yeah. going to be a funny story? No, I should tell a funny story. I should if the time is right for that. But the story that I have just happens to be not funny.
1: That's okay.
0: Well, I'll probably in post production just insert some fart noises or something, <laughs> just uh, punch it up a little bit. So that'll be great.
1: You know, Mike, if you take a bar of soap and you drop it in the toilet bowl, it makes a satisfying plop.
0: <laughs> I'm not even going to ask how you know that.
1: <laughs> well,
2: let me ask you this: Are the stories? It will be supposed, revealed. Are the stories supposed to be funny? No.
0: Because if I mean, so,
2: my, mine's going to be devastating. <laughs> is
0: this, is this be funny? No, they're just supposed to be good personal true stories.
2: Oh, mine's not good either. Damn it! <laughs> it's not funny. Well, not good.
0: Well, we'll take we'll take whatever you got. <laughs> delighted to have you. All right, you guys ready to Rochambeau for the order? Winner goes so, first. All so right, um, it goes
1: one, two, and then you show your hand on three.
0: And then you're going to sportscast this, Julie, right? Like so they-
1: Okay, we all have our fists in the air. We're all poised to see <laughs> who will be the first storyteller of That's Probably How It Happened. Dun, 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 dun. One, two, three.
0: All right, Rock goes first. So that's me. We
1: uh, dark, and the two ladies are scissorses, which means we got smashed. That makes sense,
2: you. too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it is ladies' night here. At, uh, at That's probably how it happened.
1: Yes, you're our first female guest, Mary. Oh. I was tired of so many big swinging dicks on our show. Although they are nice to have around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> good save. Good save. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mary.
2: That was just for you, mic. <laughs>
0: I appreciate that. All right. I'm up. I never knew why Steve Gennard was friends with me. We met in drama class in high school. He was two years older than me, and he was one of the stars of the performing arts department. He was a big fish in a little pond. Our, our high school theater was literally named the Little Theater, and he was usually on stage, often singing, which was, the most obvious of his many talents, and he just shined up there. Me? I don't know. What is, what is the opposite of shine? I, I think maybe I absorbed light. That was my role. <laughs> I may be an entertaining computer programmer, but if you put me in, in a room full of performers, I just disappear. But somehow Steve saw me despite my inability to reflect light, and we became friends. Steve was also, I think, the only openly gay guy in high school, which does not sound like a big deal in 2020 in San Francisco. But in the 1980s in the suburbs, it was pretty remarkable. I don't know. Somehow he never got beat up. He never got teased about it that I saw. I think people just respected him for being a friendly person and just the talent that emanated from his every pore. So we would, uh, we were friends. We would often hang out on a Friday or Saturday night. He would come over and drive us around town because he had both a license and a car, and I had neither of those things. Mm-hmm. And he would be perfecting some song. He'd be playing and replaying on his, on his cassette player some fragment of some song. Maybe it was the Carpenters because he thought Karen Carpenter had the perfect voice, objectively, or maybe the Manhattan Transfer something over and over, playing, singing, and the steering wheel, that was his drum kit. There was one time we drove down to LA, I have no idea how his steering wheel survived the pummeling all weekend long. In my role, I don't know, maybe it was to be an audience for him, I wasn't sure. I was thoroughly happy, but I didn't really understand what value I brought in the relationship. So we would hang out in record stores or bookstores where he would patiently decipher to me whatever book of poetry he is he was into at the time. Or maybe we'd go to an ice cream shop, which I was fully capable of understanding entirely by myself. It was all so <laughs> wholesome. Years later, when he was at UCLA and he would come back into town over breaks in summer, we'd do the same thing. We'd go to those same places. But then after he dropped me off at my house, he would then go out cruising at the one gay bar in Walnut <laughs> Creek. And he would pick somebody up, somebody up, and maybe he'd tell me about it afterwards the next day. and He'd say, Mike, did you know that when guys have anal sex, they do it facing each other usually? Did you know that? I, I did not know that. I had not had any anal sex with a guy or anyone or any sex with anyone ever. <laughs> but uh, it was fascinating to hear. I was getting very specific anatomy lessons from Steve, and it was entertaining like everything with him. And Steve was my go-to resource whenever I needed anyone clever. When I was graduating from high school my senior year, I needed a, a pithy quote underneath my picture in the senior yearbook, and I could not figure out what my final statement should be. And so I called Steve up, and he helped me puzzle through it. He remembered that I loved the comic The Far Side. And so we went through a book of those comics, trying to see if there was any quote in there that would be good as a senior quote. And we found one. And I remember the comic. It was three cows standing on a hillside. And then one of them looks, out, looks up, all alarmed and angry, and says, Hey, wait a minute. This is grass. We've been eating grass. <laughs> it was... Perfect. It was, I just loved the sudden acknowledgement of that cow realizing what had been there all along. It was the perfect quote for me. <laughs> Whatever Steve did, he always excelled at. That was just the way he was going to do. He was not going to do anything half-hearted. At one point, he got accepted to audition to be on the game show Wheel of Fortune, which is not an impressive game show. It is, you know, basically Hangman. It's not Jeopardy. <laughs> But he was going to study for it. He was going to be the best Wheel of Fortune player ever. So he watched the show obsessively in all the the puzzles there. It's some category, like maybe it's things or phrases. So he made lists of all of the categories. And then he tried to make lists of all the possible answers. So he made a list of all phrases. This is pre-internet. This is pre-anyone even having like a computer in their house typically, but he made a list of every phrase that he could possibly think of. And he organized them by the number of words in the phrase and then the number of letters in each of those words. And it got to the point where I could go, okay, Steve, give me a phrase, three words, four letters, five letters, four letters. And he'd say, home, sweet home. (laughs) It was remarkable. I, to this day, the fact that they did not put him on the show, I consider to be a travesty. I think maybe he was, too good and just would have like shown the whole thing to be the stupid show that it was. But that was Steve. So he moved around for a couple of years, but then came back to Walnut Creek in the early nineties and he was HIV positive. Hmm. And this was back before there were any drugs to treat HIV. And it was basically a death sentence. It was just a question of how much time did he have left? And so Steve knew that he was going to make the most of his time. He said, Mike, here's my plan. I'm going to apply for a bunch of credit cards and get all the money I can and spend it and just leave a ton of debt behind me. He's like, I know that sounds socially irresponsible, but I I think I earned it. He said, I've been a good citizen in so many ways, like You know how when people turn their lights on when they go through the Caldecott Tunnel, sometimes they forget to turn their headlights off when they come out, even though it's the middle of the day? He's like, I've always been the person honking at them and blinking my lights at them (laughs) so that their battery doesn't go dead. I have contributed a lot to society, and I think I deserve to get a little back. I don't know if that math really works out, but but I agree that this was a, a fair trade. And a few months later, when Steve was in the hospital, I went to visit him, and he kept busy... He was planning his memorial service down to a T. He knew exactly what songs he wanted played and who he wanted speaking and singing and what order it would be in. And he was going to make the most entertaining, most Steve memorial service ever. When I attended that memorial service, I sat there in a room of people I mostly had never met before because Steve had made friends and lovers wherever he had gone. And this room was filled with them. And they sang and they told stories. And it was, I think, the time when I got to sit in the audience and soak in that Steve Gennard goodness one last time and be that audience member. And so it is very nice to sit here today and tell you all about Steve and not just be an audience member. It took me a while, but I feel like I'm finally contributing something to the friendship now. And I'm appreciative for that. Thank you.
2: Oh, oh yes, Mike. Oh, my God. I always love your story so much, Mike. Uh,
0: thank that. you.
2: Wow. That's a really sweet story. It's such a beautiful tribute.
0: I still think of him every time I drive through the Caldecott Tunnel. So he's he's still with me in some way. All right. Mm-hmm. Who's next? You guys are gonna have an epic Rochambeau. Mary and Julie both have their fists raised on three ladies. Okay. One, two, three. Mary's paper, Julie's rock, and it's a stunning turn.
2: Okay, you know why I won that? Because after you told me that we were going to do Rochambeau, I looked that up, and I read this long article by a guy that has figured out the secret to Rochambeau, and he calculates depending on what you do when you go first, what you're going to do when you go second, so Julie went scissors first and he hypothesized she would go rock second. So I did paper.
0: <laughs> I have a I have a much simpler algorithm. I just always go rock. But, um, <laughs> but I'm glad you you thought about this thoroughly. So,
2: you just go rock no matter what? Like no matter what the circumstance?
0: It's a rock, right? It feels like it should be the winning thing.
2: <laughs> okay, so I'm next. All right. So when I was 15 and a half... I was so thrilled that morning on my 15 and a half birthday, because that's the day you can apply for a California driver's license permit. And I had a whole plan in place. I had just been released from reform school two weeks before. And i had been in reform school for two years for being incorrigible. Thank you. I was. Um, I was in reform <laughs> school for two years for being incorrigible. And before that, I had had this crazy, turbulent, violent, devastating, you know, childhood. And so 15 and a half year old me standing in the Department of Motor Vehicles in San Francisco was like vibrating with neuroses and just looking for trouble. And so I found it that day. Looking across that crowded waiting room at the DMV, I saw him. Maximiliano Martinez. But like he said, you can call me Max. It was one of those things where you lock eyes and you just immediately feel as if you've been hit in the back of the head with a two by four, you know, that thing that happens. Well, I never had it happen to me then. I was only 15 and a half and I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it was fantastic. But what I would find out years later is that When you see someone across a crowded room and you lock eyes and you feel like you've been hit in the back of the head with a two by four, that's not love. That's your karmic destiny tapping you on the shoulder and saying, man, this one's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad, Mary. But I didn't know that. So I was thrilled. So Max and I fell in love immediately. Now, there was a tiny problem that Max was 30 and a half to my 15 and a half. And that he himself had just been released from a California correctional facility two weeks earlier because Max was a heroin addict. See, this story's getting funnier by the minute, right? Wow. So Max was a heroin addict. But he'd just gotten out of prison, and so he was all clean and shiny and had been jogging for the last year and a half, and he was ready to get out and make his mark on the world. And so that's the moment when I caught up with them. And so I just thought we were going to have this bright, shiny future together. And I had had this plan, this mantra going that I'd worked on when I was in reform school, and then I was at home at my parents' house for a few weeks, and the mantra was, get a license, get a car, get out. And that's exactly what I did. I got a license, borrowed a car from a very trusting family member, and just got out. And Max and I started our life together. And it was fun at first, having somebody that cared about me, thought I was all grown up. It was fabulous until that inevitable moment when I turned and looked at Max on the couch and his head was in his chest. Because Max, of course, inevitably was back on heroin. And within a matter of weeks, so was I. And so by the time I was 16 and in this loving relationship with Max and strung out on heroin, um, I had become desperate, desperately addicted to heroin, $200 a day. This was, I was, let's see, 16 then. So this is back in 1973, and $200 a day was a lot of money. And so we started getting desperate. We had sold everything we could, borrowed everything we could, Now Max was going to teach me how to steal. We stole a suitcase out of the car. And as we're going through this suitcase, I see there's a tennis racket. There's a plaque. There's paperwork. I'm looking through this. I see it's a young guy from Sweden that's here on like a tennis scholarship or some special thing. There's a tennis racket, paperwork, nice things in his suitcase. I was devastated. I told Max, we have to put it back. There's nothing in here that we need. Let's put it back. And Max looked at me and said, fuck that punk. And I didn't know then, but I know now because since then I've worked as a consultant for prisons and I've opened programs within prisons. And what I know now is that is a quintessential prison attitude. Only out for yourself. Don't care about anybody else. Do whatever you have to do to get what you have to get. And I just didn't like it at all. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't comfortable. He taught me how to pull a runner right? You go to Salvation Army and you steal a purse and a sweater. And then you put a bunch of toilet paper in the purse. And then you go to Denny's or something and you eat. And then when you go to the counter, you open your purse and say, oh, my God, I forgot my wallet. Can you watch my purse and my sweater while I go get the wallet? And they say, oh, sure. And then you run away. But the thing was, I could never enjoy those meals. I could never digest my food. I could never like relate to the waiter, the waitress, like a funny back and forth. Cause I felt so guilty. I hated it. He said, well, there's another thing we can do. We can pull a Murphy. And it's a, it's an old hustle. He said, and that sounded sort of exciting, like New York on the streets hustling. I kind of thought. And then when he explained it to me, it sounded like there was acting involved. So I was like, yeah, I, I'd always wanted to act. Right. So I was into it. <laughs> so, I went my job was to go stand on a street corner in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, which is a very rough and tumble neighborhood, especially at night with a lot of drug addiction, criminal behavior and other such activity and a lot of prostitution and such. So I was to stand on a corner and attract somebody. And then when I took him to an alley, Max would then come and demand the guy's wallet. So that's what we did. And I was supposed to act scared. And we went to the alley. Max approached him with his hand in his pocket as if he had some kind of weapon. And what happened was the older gentleman that I brought back there was so scared. And I was so completely, overwhelmingly devastated. I couldn't believe it that something I was doing was creating that kind of fear in another person. I was just destroyed over it. And I'm crying hysterically. And Max is trying to covertly tell me to like, shut up because I'm part of this thing, but I'm crying hysterically along with the guy. I'm so devastated and I get the guy out of there and then I run away. And so, but I saw something that night. I saw a path out for myself and and a way to support my drug addiction without doing any of those things that Max wanted to do. I broke up with him that night. And the next night I went back to the Tenderloin. I stood on a corner and the first person that drove up and said, how much, I just took a stab in the dark. And I said, $40. And the guy laughed and said, $40? Where do you think you are? And so I said, well, okay, $30. And he said, well, for $30, I want a half and half. And I had no idea what a half and half was. So I said, well, what half do you like better? You know, hoping to give something away. And I needn't have worried. I mean, the negotiations lasted about five times as long as the deed itself, which lasted about two minutes. And I'll tell you, I felt from the very start that what I was doing was honorable. I felt like it was the best thing that I could do in the situation I was in to support myself and to support this drug habit. And the weird thing was Of course, it was a very distorted way to learn a lesson. It's not your normal way. Normal human beings, when they have normal human development, they learn things as they go through life. When you have a life like I had, you learn the lessons in a different way. And so for me, being a prostitute at 16 years of age in the tenderloin of San Francisco incongruously was one of the most empowering things that ever happened to me. And this is what I know nobody will understand because on the face, it sounds like it should be a tragic story and that I'm a victim in this story. And that's not at all the way it was. It was the first time in my life that I ever felt any measure of control over my own body. It was Mm -hmm. the first time in my entire life, well, all 16 years of it, that I felt any sense of dominion over myself because I was raised in a culture where men have complete dominion over women and women have no intrinsic value at all, except to the degree to which they can make men's lives better. To the degree they can elevate men's lives, they have value. Other than that, none at all. And when I was a younger teenager, before I went into reform school, I remember a couple of times where I slept with people that I didn't even want to, didn't like them, wasn't attracted but I thought I had to because they wanted me. And so turning tricks down in the tenderloin with these nervous guys, some of them were married guys that felt really nervous and scared. Others were doing gay stuff out there, but they're in a non-gay relationship. Other people um, felt so ashamed and dirty about what they were doing. And then guys like with micro penises where they're really embarrassed, maybe sexually. And so they go to somebody, you know, quote, professional. And it was really something to have these people turning to me and being nervous with me and thinking that I was somehow in control. Of course, none of them knew I was 16 years old. I looked like I was about 26, frankly, and and acted like that. Um, And so there was something empowering about it. And the way that it ended was I ended up getting arrested. And my parents who hadn't seen me for about a year and a half saw me getting arrested on TV and my father tried to help me by offering me a job at his porno theater in Hawaii, where I actually worked for a year after I got off the streets to San Francisco. And that's a whole other story. Um, but, you know, it's like, being, it's like being raised by wolves. Things that seem normal in a wolf family would seem crazy if you did it at your house, you know? But that seemed normal. Like, hey, let's help out Mary. She'd come work at my porno theater. And the thing was, like, and then about and then after I had that in Hawaii, then that's where I really started to find my way out. That's when I really started to pursue my education and my life and everything else. But the thing was, through all these years, all these years of being a professional speaker, all these years of telling stories, all these years of writing, I have never once told that story, never once. And what I've told myself my whole life is, hey, people wouldn't understand it they can't handle it. They haven't had those kinds of experiences. So they're going to judge you by what you did, not by who you are. Hmm. But I've been working with this and I see it wasn't them that were judging me. It was me that was judging me this whole time. That's why I never told anybody. But when I look back as a 63-year-old woman, at a 16-year-old kid on the street that found her way out like that without hurting anybody else, I should have been so proud of that. I should have been so proud, and I am. Thank you.
0: Wow.
1: Wow, Mary. Thank you for sharing. That's a that's a Mary Karuba exclusive. All right. All right, Julie. All right, so, you're the last one. So I guess for uh, on now on the lighter side. Yes. <laughs> this story is not anything like the other two. So um, <laughs> I I was working at my desk when I heard a cry coming from the bathroom. Kind of a soft cry. And so I get up, and as I am on my way to the bathroom, I pick up my video camera and I turn it on because this could be the big moment. <laughs> and I go into the bathroom and I see Benjamin is on the toilet, but he does not look happy. He gets up and walks around the toilet seat a couple of times and he looks at me and he says, Meow, you can do it, Benjamin. I try to encourage him and he squats and lifts his tail and he sends one perfect round little poop and it bounces off the toilet seat and falls on the floor. Good boy, Benjamin, I tell him because at least he tried and we'll work on his aim, you know, and the subsequent attempts. And I switch off my video camera and I give him a kitty treat because I have been teaching Benjamin my cat how to go to the bathroom using the toilet instead of a litter box for the entire summer in my second year of film school master's degree program at UCLA film school, one of the top film schools in the country where I have been accepted one of only 21 other people in the, in the whole world got into this program that year. And I was one of them. And I realized as soon as I got there, that I just did not fit in. For one thing, I was older. I was one of the oldest students. I was 34 when I went to film school, and everybody, else, most of the other people were right out of college. And it was like being in high school all over again. They were clicks, some kids were popular, some kids weren't. And I was super socially awkward. I would try to have conversations over the lunch period, but the only thing that I could hear to talk about, like the words coming out of my mouth, the phrases I was trying out in my head were, were well, I did this or, and I did that, like trying to look good in front of them because I felt so uh-huh. inferior to everybody. And I did the stupidest thing in which the very first year it was 2004 when I started And blogging was a big deal. And I made a blog that I didn't think anybody would ever find on the internet. And it was called film school confidential. I know a real, real, (laughs) such, such an authentic name. And I was writing about the other students in my class. And I mentioned one of them by name. And his father found out about it because his father was the head of Disney. (laughs) And so... I was totally blacklisted. The kids didn't like me at all, but I didn't know why, because nobody would come up to me and say, hey, Julie, why have you been writing about us? Because I don't think anybody would find my stupid blog, but of course this guy has a million PR agents combing the internet for any mention of him, and so when I mentioned his son, it came up. So I was super unpopular, never mind the fact that I was watching my cholesterol and eating lots of fiber, and fiber, as you know, can make you... Gassy. Right. So I'd come to school and I'd be unpopular and gassy and nobody wanted to sit next to me. And by the second semester, the second year, I was I was very, very lonely. So what do you do when you're lonely? <laughs> you go and you get a cat or a dog. But in my case, I got a cat. And at the shelter, there were no cats or kittens except for one sneezing Tomcat that they said was going to be euthanized the next day he was orange and white and he had big puffy cheeks and a big scruffy neck because he had not been neutered and he was fully male he was only about a year old and he purred like an outboard motor but only if you scratched him on the cheeks if you tried to pet him if you tried to pick him up he would bite you, which is probably why he ended up in the animal shelter. But I took him home and I named him Benjamin and I tried to become friends with him. And I realized that he liked to play and he was actually really smart. And so I started training him with little kitty treats to do tricks. And then after he could do a couple of tricks, like he could follow a pencil around and poke his nose against it. He could, um, fetch a toy mouse and drop it and wait for me to throw it again. And so then I thought I'll teach him how to to go to the bathroom in the toilet so I don't have to clean the litter box. And since I'm a documentary student, I'm filming the whole thing (laughs) with my video camera, which takes mini DV tape guys. This was 2005 or six by now, 2006 maybe. So every day I train Benjamin, and the way you do it uh, is you get a sitz bath, which is a plastic basin used for soaking your hemorrhoids. And you put it in the toilet, and you fill it with litter, and you get the cat to jump onto the toilet and use the sitz bath filled with litter as the litter box. So after the cat is used to doing this rigmarole for a few weeks, you cut a hole in the sitz bath. And yes, the litter falls into the toilet. You have to buy fleshable litter. And little by little, you make the hole bigger every week until your cat's poop is going directly into the toilet. Anyway, this was the plan. So cut to the second year of film school. There's going to be a short form comedy class taught by none other than the great comedy director, Kevin Smith. And I really want to get into this class. And so to get into the class, you have to write him a letter about why you should get in. And I was I was just like, short form is going to be the wave of the future. Google had not yet bought YouTube. YouTube was a little backwater on the Internet. And people were making silly videos and uploading them to YouTube and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the huge thing it is now. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the wave of the future. I have to get into this class. And I basically wrote a letter demanding that I get into the class. <laughs> and they did not let me into the class because it's a comedy class and I was not funny. I was insecure and whiny and demanding and farty. also very funny. <laughs> So what happened was. They decided they needed a behind-the-scenes documentarian to document the whole class. This is Kevin Smith's first time teaching at UCLA. So we're going to make a little movie about the class itself. And I got that because I'm in the documentary program. So every week, I would sit in the back of the room while the other students got to participate in the class and got to make the videos, but the thing is, Kevin Smith, I mean, I don't I don't know if he'll ever hear this. Kevin Smith, thank you, but you were not a very good teacher because students were dropping out of your class. Students were dropping out of Kevin Smith's class because he kept rewriting their scripts saying they weren't funny enough. And they got mad. Oh. They were all very funny-type students. So by the end of the semester – Kevin Smith is asking people to pitch ideas for comedy segments to make the show and nobody's raising their hand. And I'm sitting in the back thinking about Benjamin and my project with him. And I raise my hand and I say, I have an idea. And he says, what's your idea? And I say, how about a segment about teaching your cat to go to the bathroom in the toilet? And you would think people would laugh, but they were, they were like, I'm out. This is stupid. I'm, you know, they were, they were rolling their eyes. They, they thought it was stupid. And Kevin Smith says, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I have this cat and I'm I've been training him to to do it for the past three months. And I got a lot of footage and I'm pointing to my video camera. And then Kevin Smith says in front of the whole class, animals pooping in toilets comedy gold <laughs> so the next week those students had to spend the whole weekend with me in my apartment squeezed into my bathroom waiting for my cat to shit in my toilet <laughs> and you can still see the video on YouTube it's called Kitty Potty Training with Julie and this, Mike, is how come I know that when you drop a bar of soap into the toilet, <laughs> it makes a satisfying plop.
0: <laughs> Comedy gold. Comedy gold still holds up.
2: Oh, that was so great! <laughs> oh, it's such, it's such poetic justice
1: that they all ended up in your bathroom watching the right. soap. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And they made a very funny video, and they edited it really well, and it was very fun. Are you going to provide a link to it in the podcast? Oh, yeah. In the podcast, yeah. I'll provide a link to it for yeah. all of our seven listeners.
0: they <laughs> <laughs> yeah, will promote the podcast. Yeah. Yay! I'll, I'll figure out I'll figure out how to put a link somewhere. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. in the
1: description of the episode.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That is what I can do. See,
2: this is what I like about storytelling. You have this poignant story that Mike told about a beautiful friend and his life and his death. And then I told my horrendous story of being a teenage prostitute. And then you told your story of keeping your cat to poop. And life is <laughs> in
1: balance.
0: Yes. <laughs> so how did things end up with Benjamin? Like, was he a successful toilet pooper?
1: So Benjamin was so good at going in the toilet that if I was home and awake, he would actually meow so that I would come into the bathroom and observe his work so that I could treat him and give him a treat. Because he knew that if he just peed there without me seeing, he wouldn't get anything. He would call me in and then he would turn to the toilet paper roll And he would start batting at it, and he would bat all of the toilet paper into the toilet to cover his poop. And so I had to not keep any toilet paper on the toilet paper roll because it would be in the toilet clogging up the pipes every single day. What, question?
0: Yeah, sorry, wait. So your toilet paper roll was in a spot where the toilet paper then would just fall directly into the toilet if you unrolled it like it like it jutted out from the wall and hung over the bowl?
1: (laughs) So imagine a lot of apartments. I know you've never lived in an apartment in your entire life. But But a lot of apartments have the toilet right next to the vanity. And there's a toilet roll holder uh, attached to the vanity right next to the toilet. And so he would just turn to it and start batting at it so fast <laughs> that it would literally pile off and into the toilet.
0: We will include a, a floor plan no, no, in the a, uh, episode a, there's notes. There's an
1: example of what he does at the end of the video. So at the end of the video, oh. you'll see him doing that. Because it. it's, it's funny until it happens every single time
0: it's not just funny it's comedy gold. <laughs> thank,
1: god I didn't, thank god I didn't teach him how to flush because he would be oh, flushing constantly what I
2: want to hear though is I want to hear Benjamin's conversations with the other cats with the neighborhood cats It'd be like man I got her so snowed she, she gets so excited every time I get on the toilet you think it's Christmas I love playing with her <laughs>
1: I actually taught I actually adopted two kittens when I had Benjamin and taught them how to go in the toilet also (laughs) so they were all taking turns going in the toilet (laughs) that's something
0: all right I love it all right
1: we have a tagline that we say at the end Mary do you want to say it what is (laughs) it that's a wrap it's over
0: that's a wrap it's over
1: that's a wrap it's over That's a wrap.
2: It's over.
0: That's a wrap. It's over.
1: Goodbye.
0: Mary's a professional. Thank you very much, Mary.
1: Thank you, guys. If you're listening to this podcast, you are our eighth or ninth person who will ever listen to this podcast. Please write us a review. Leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and write us a review of what you thought of it. Thank you.